Maximum Health with your host, Dr. Ken Gray. With over 20 years in healthcare, Dr. Gray is a doctor of oriental medicine and holistic physician fusing Eastern and Western healing. Dr. Gray is on staff at Jupiter Medical Center and in private practice with an office in Jupiter, Florida, where he resides. Dr. Gray enjoys being a physician as well as being an educator. His unique approach to holistic healing has taken him abroad to lecture in Baden-Baden, Germany, and treat sports professionals in Hawaii and Biarritz, France. He is co-author of several books on food therapy and the founder of the annual Star Summit Talks at the Norton Museum of Art in Palm Beach, Florida. Now it's time for Maximum Health with Dr. Ken Gray. Welcome back, everyone. This is Maximum Health Radio, quality living with yours truly, Dr. Ken Gray. Thank you for joining us. Uh, This is uh, obviously available via podcast. Hopefully, if you've been listening, uh, you'll know that. But if not, you can always search any of your podcasts, uh, iTunes or Apple or, you know, Google. You you were up there and there's probably over 100 shows for you to enjoy. Um, Today, we have a very special guest and and, uh, I'm so grateful that he is taking the time to talk with us. uh, State attorney for Palm Beach County, Mr. Dave Ehrenberg. Thank you, sir. Hey, thanks for having me on, Dr. Ken. Well, you know, this is a show about healing, and, uh, and, and in this case, I think that would be classified as under social healing. Um, but there's other aspects to this, because right now, in the time that we're in, there is so much going on. Um, this is an era where we are looking at a particular virus called coronavirus-19. It's got its own, you know, <laughs> abbreviations. It's all this. It's, it's a talk. It's become all these things. And, I, and, and what we haven't realized in the midst of the social media, media frenzy, all of this that has consumed us, there's all these other issue, health issues and aspects to civilization as we know it and the importance to real real-time safety for our children, for our families, for our homes. So I wanted to talk to you about the rise of domestic violence, child abuse, as well as human sex trafficking during this time. And I, I, I really appreciate you taking this time to talk with me because I, I know you've, you've got the inside view of what's happening. And, and so the first thing I want to say is, as the state attorney for Palm Beach County, what is your main job? What is your mandate? Both mandate li- is, yeah, go ahead. is to protect public safety. Okay. It's to stand up for victims of crime. It's also to protect the wrongly accused. It's to do justice. It not necessarily means convicting in every case. It's to do justice. There, there's a difference. You want to make sure you get it right. Because as state attorney, you have the ultimate power of government, a power that most other people in government do not have, which is to deprive another person of their freedom. And so you have to take it really seriously, and, and you don't get a second chance in many cases. You, I mean, even if you do, you, that person who was wrongfully accused or wrongly convicted has a stain on their record forever. Right. So we're, we try to get it right every time, although we are human, and we also have a conviction review unit, which goes back, and if there is someone who is was wrongfully convicted and is actually innocent, we will uh, review it and try to remedy that situation, and most officers don't have that. Mm. Sounds like a big job. It's a it's a serious job. Yeah, we've got about 110 prosecutors okay. and about 180 
professional staff at five offices throughout the county. You know, there's something you can do that other people can't do as well, is you can do things uh, to our benefit in talking about ours, meaning Palm Beach County, for instance, um, and, and general state attorneys can do things that are bipartisan. You can look at issues and judge things or help with things from a non-political standpoint, and that's so important in this day and age. Correct. We're living in a very divided time. And although I can be political outside the office, when it comes to inside this office, justice is blind. We are nonpartisan. We don't ask anyone's party affiliation, whether it's a victim or a defendant. We don't look at it. We don't care. The prosecutors here come from all different walks of life, different ideologies. But we're all focused on the goal of doing justice. And I give a lot of credit to my uh, my prosecutors because, you know, there are attorneys who come out of law school with usually with six figures of debt, and they decided to take a job that pays them about half of what they can make in a private law firm. And as, as they stay here, it is like a third of what they could make in a private law firm. So mm-hmm. they do it because they have the passion to serve, and you know, I'm just grateful to be around uh, such great people. Mm. Now, I, I watched some videos on you, and I, you know, doing my research, I, I learned that you, um, to avoid and to to take an issue and insulate it from political pressure, you assembled a grand jury to deal with uh, issues that were going on in schools, gun violence, and a lot of things that we needed to deal with. But within Palm Beach County, you, you did that. What, whatever came of that? The one on school violence issued a report that suggested changes in Palm Beach County to make our schools safer. This was in the wake of the Parkland massacre, and we wanted to tighten up school security and it was important that you had a grand jury look at it because that's an independent set of eyes from the outside, a cross-section of the community that's shown evidence and comes forth with their recommendations. And there are other groups that you know, have vested interest in keeping the community safe, like the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office and the school board police. But you know, I think it's also important, in addition to their reviews, to have that separate pair of eyes from civilians in the community who look at it from a different perspective. And I think that uh, the grand jury did a really good job. Some of those recommendations have been implemented, and the grand jury report is still out there. Now, another area where the grand jury, I thought, did an important job was in the area of sober homes. We shut down a lot of rogue sober homes and corrupted drug treatment centers after the grand jury came out with its presentment to to focus attention on the fraud and abuse inside the drug treatment industry. This was ground zero here in Palm Beach County, where people would come from all over the country to try to get well and instead would be exploited for their insurance benefits and leave our community in an ambulance or a body bag. And that's an area where the grand jury stepped up and issued a report. And one one particular anecdote about that that I find interesting is that it's one thing for our Sober Homes Task Force and our grand jury to issue recommendations that are adopted by state legislators, and that's what happened to change Florida law. But it's another thing for a multinational corporation like Google to respond. And when the grand jury called out Google for its marketing practices when it comes to drug treatment, Google responded and changed their marketing practices. So mm. I took that as really a major accomplishment. So, so the grand jury seems to be one of your tools and a very effective tool. Um, what are some other tools that you have been able to use in your position um, in general? Well, we have the power to charge criminally. In, uh, in cases, and, and that is quite, uh, you know, I mean, there's nothing that influences 
bad behavior than a pair of handcuffs. Right. <laughs> that is, that's, that's a huge power uh, that we have, that we have the decision over the final charges. So, you know, police will investigate, they can make an arrest, but it's our decision to make those charges, to, to decide right. what to charge. And that alone is a major deterrent to criminal conduct in the community, but you've got to get it right. You've got to have right. enough evidence to sustain a conviction. Right. It is unethical for us to put forward a case if we know we don't have a reasonable likelihood of a conviction beyond a reasonable doubt. Right. And so we have to do everything ethically. But that is another one of our powers, not just to convene the grand jury, but also the power to prosecute wrongdoers for violation of state criminal statutes. Okay. So, so getting it right is important. Now, just to bring this full circle, the I'm, I'm going to guess that like almost every business globally, much less nationally, much less countywide, <laughs> that's been affected by COVID-19 in such a negative way. There's been a, um, there's been a, a horrible sort of reduction of resources. Um, obviously, there's an element of human connection, of being able to do your job, of physically being present in tracking down, say, sex offenders or uh, criminals or, you know, all, all these things that you need to do to do your job effectively has been hampered by some of the legislature tied to avoiding contact and so forth under the COVID-19 times, whatever we're going to call it. Well, police continue to do their jobs every day and prosecutors uh, will do our jobs every day, too. We're in court every day because crime never sleeps. And right. every day a defendant is entitled to see a judge for a bond hearing. That's like their bail their bond hearing uh, after they've been arrested. And so we have to be in court every day, 365 days a year for that, right. even over holidays and during hurricanes. And so the main area where COVID has impacted our ability to do our job is when it comes to jury trials. Jury trials, grand juries, they have all been suspended. They've been suspended for months. And so there is a backlog of jury trials. And we're going to have to deal with that once that stay is lifted. Also, it prevents us from indicting in murder cases and other cases that require a grand jury, because the grand jury can't meet until the Supreme Court says it's safe to do so. Mm. So that's, that's hard. That's a big deal. Yeah. Now, it doesn't mean that these defendants will go free. It just means that their cases, their trials are right. pending. Mm -hmm. But, um, it, you know, that's the main area where it's impeded our ability to do our job. Yeah, that's, that's a big area. And I know this has come up, I had a listener call in about it, um, asking about the tracking of sex offenders, and that uh, being also an issue here, because there are offices which are, you know, usually open and, and functioning to do that properly, which, or, you know, to some level properly, that even now, there's less of that going on. And so that's a problem. Well, that's law enforcement. Our office doesn't get involved in the tracking of sex offenders. Gotcha. Although if someone violates their residency restriction or other law, then, mm -hmm. then we would get involved in potentially prosecuting that person. But as far as the day-to-day -day investigations and you know the, the work of trying to uh, make sure people are, are uh, complying with their sex offender requirements, that's law enforcement. Mm -hmm. And we are separate. We work with law enforcement, but we are a separate agency and a separate pair of eyes. Gotcha. So, you know, just to back up a bit, a little bit of the reason why I wanted to do this show with you um, in, in, a, in a big way is that, you know, for me growing up, uh, and just to get a little personal here, I, uh, my first, you know, area of childhood 
was when my mom was married to my biological dad, and it was a hard time before she remarried. And for me, I was in a home of, of, of child abuse and, um, and domestic violence and those sort of things, and thankfully my mom eventually left because of my dad who raised me. Um, there's a lot of things that go into people staying in situations um, like that, and some of it's financial, um, some of it's obviously other stresses, alcohol, drug abuse, so forth and so on. Um, we're seeing a rise of those elements now, and so are you also, we're seeing a rise of those elements because of unemployment, then there's more drug abuse, more drug selling, more of a market for it, there's stress, there's all of those because people are unemployed and so forth and so on. Now, are you seeing a rise during this time of a lot of these complaints coming through your office? Well, the, the overall crime rate seems to have been pretty steady. At the beginning, it dropped because of the lockdowns. We saw, despite that, an uptick in domestic violence cases and an uptick in car burglaries. That makes sense because in a lockdown, when you lock the home, you, know, you have people who are trying to be opportunistic and take advantage of cars that are sitting out there, especially the ones unlocked. And domestic violence, it's when alcohol is often involved, not always, but often. And remember, liquor stores were open during the lockdown as essential businesses. So we saw an uptick in domestic violence cases. But as far as other issues like child abuse, like you mentioned, we've actually seen a decrease in the number of child abuse uh, cases that have come in this office since March. And, you know, maybe that's because of, the, of COVID. There's uh, maybe fewer people are reporting it, or maybe there's just fewer instances for whatever reason. I, I, I can't really explain it because you would just think, you know, just off the top of your head, that if there was an increase in domestic violence because of COVID, that perhaps child abuse as well. Mm-hmm. But remember, the lockdowns are over. And so mm-hmm. since the lockdowns, everything has been pretty steady. So since the statistics I have seen started uh, is from March to August, um, I, you know, that shows you that most of that time was not during a lockdown. Mm-hmm. And so perhaps uh, that could explain why the numbers uh, have not risen. Um, now, it could also be just a summer trend, uh, but I have not been able to compare it to other numbers uh, in, in history. I just know that compared to last year, w- w- this year to last year, the number of child abuse cases in the past few months have actually gone down. And, and that's the case reported to this office. Right. Now, I'm I'm going to speculate and, and, you know, I get, you know, when I look at some of the comments out there and I know this is the first time where social media has been such a big political tool to to really dictate local policy, state policy, national policy, global policy. I mean, it's really incredible because people are looking at the comments and actually weighing and they weighing they're weighing in on big issues. Um, which sometimes don't make sense. Now, I get that there are parents there that say, I don't want my kid in school and so forth and so on based upon what their news pathway is and what they're receiving as information. And But I will tell you, as one of those children, that was my not only escape, but the teachers and the awareness that comes with child abuse, sometimes that's the first line of defense is your school, right. is your teachers and your, you know, your friends and their parents. So I'm going to honestly speculate that the reports not coming in, because they generally don't come from the parent. The parents are already in fear. The parents are already also being abused, you know. 
So, and and we know that unfortunately there are police officers that get so disheartened through their job of trying to bring peace to a home and help save a domestic, you know, a wife who's incurred violence and a child, and and they get nowhere. So now you remove teachers and social responsibility, and you keeping these children in the homes. There's really no ability for those reports to come in. So, I guess what I'm saying is not putting that finger in your direction at all because that's not your mandate but what I'm looking for I guess in this show for children like myself you know reflecting <laughs> and their safety which is being compromised this time is what solutions do we have what what do solutions do these children have what solutions do these wives have um, which in most cases I'm assuming it's the wife but I'm sure there's homes where it's the men being right. <laughs> violenced upon if right. we want to use that term when, when it comes to adults like domestic violence even though the courthouses are closed for jury trials they're still open for domestic violence restraining orders okay. and so that's available okay as far as child abuse that's different because yeah. a child is, is not going to go to the courthouse for restraining order right. really and so, many times a child doesn't know that something's happening wrong exactly right exactly i think this is normal right but at least the police are on duty department of children and families are on duty they're working every day to try to stamp out child abuse but, yeah, that's part of the problem, is that the victims may not realize that they are being victimized. Right. And so, you know, they're, they're, uh, you just need to make sure that our state agencies and our, and our police are investing like they always are, and they are in our state. Okay. I can't really explain the, the drop-off in, in child abuse uh, since the pandemic, uh, but, you know, because more time is being spent at home even without a lockdown. Um, there is talk that if we don't open schools, that that could lead to more child abuse and, and less reporting. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm not a social scientist, but we are ready on the backside that if people are uh, are charged with child abuse, we're there to prosecute. But the problem is once my office gets involved, it's usually too late. Right. It's after right. Yes. a crime has occurred. It's after a tragedy has occurred. That is such and a great what, point. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for saying that because prevention is key in all aspects of health. That's my firm belief. That's what I practice. That's what I do as a physician. That's what I do as a father. As a, you know, I mean, that's why I'm here on the radio. <laughs> so somehow we can get some prevention uh, going. So speaking about prevention, one of the hot topics that people have spoken to you about that you've done so many talks on and, and, and been advocate for is, is against uh, human trafficking. And you know, there was at once this sort of idea that it's all foreign. It's all coming from outside. It's coming from Asia. It's coming mm -hmm. from Mexico. Yeah. No, I've done shows with people who run, you know, homes for uh, for for women without homes, uh, pregnant women without homes, all these different things. There's local places like Hannah's Home. You know, the reality is, is most of it is domestic. Most of it is coming from within drug abuse uh, ridden homes with young children who are being sold off or given off to prostitution and it's a hard fact to realize but now you add more unemployment business is gone you know uh, no no uh, general help uh, otherwise and you get depression you get more drug abuse and you get obviously those things that come with it so Let's talk a little bit about the child trafficking and what you've seen in that area and how we can possibly do something in that department as a society. Well, yeah, people, people think that human trafficking is where foreign nationals come in and are smuggled in the country and forced to engage in sex acts or labor. And there, that, that is partially true. But most victims of sex trafficking 
are homegrown. They're runaways. They come from our local communities. And uh, most victims of labor trafficking, where people come to work and force forced labor, that, that is, uh, most of those victims are from elsewhere, from uh, foreign countries. But there's also misconceptions about what human trafficking is. You know, human trafficking is exploitation. It's not necessarily about transportation. And so the thought that it's about women who are smuggled across the southern border with duct tape and rope is more Hollywood than reality. What is reality is the person who is lured to the community under false pretenses to be in movies or to you know, work in a nail salon and in reality then are forced into sex acts. And and it doesn't even have to be you know, with chains and, and, and guns uh, that force someone's compliance. It could be just in many cases, it's just it's like Stockholm syndrome. It's just it's it's mental abuse and and mental pressure. It's it's uh, it's it's exploitation, and you know it, human trafficking is often hiding in plain sight. It's when you go to the nail salon and you're you're looking at some you're, you're you have someone who is working there who is living in the back room and is not a, not allowed to touch the money and is afraid to look at you in the eye. Those are red flags for human trafficking. You know, it's it's the 16-year-old girl who shows up to high school, and she's from a difficult background, and then she shows up one day with new jewelry and a new older boyfriend whose name is tattooed on her eyelids. I mean, that's an actual case. Mm. You know, that's the reality of modern-day slavery. Now, with these actual cases, tell us a little, give us a little picture of how they would proceed. Like, give us the back end. As far as how we prosecute them? Yes. Well, we have a task force, and that's an exception to the more passive role that prosecutors play. You ever watch Law & Order? You know, prosecutors are on the second half of the TV show. My office is the second half of the TV show. But when you have a task force, and we have task forces for human trafficking, for the sober home drug treatment fraud that I mentioned earlier. Yes. We have one for public corruption then we move into the first half of the show with police. We actually work with police to develop cases. So we have prosecutors working with law enforcement at the state and national level. So we have you know, PBSO, uh, our local cops who uh, enforce state laws. We have, we have federal FBI, Homeland Security. We have computer crimes experts. And we have a location up in this county where we are on the Internet seeking out those who try to prey upon our are, uh, are members of our community, mostly mostly children, but it could be anyone. Mm -hmm. And we're proactive, and we're going out there, and we use our very strong statutes. Our state has very tough laws against human trafficking. Mm -hmm. And we go after these individuals. And so our task force has been really effective. Before we formed the task force, which is funded by a federal grant that was just renewed, uh, that Sheriff Bradshaw applied for and received, before we created that task force, we had almost no human trafficking cases. And the task force has been around for about four years, and uh, since then, we've had a multitude of cases. I mean, it's, it's shot up. Wow. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden that people started committing human trafficking. Right. It means that we've been better at Detecting. identifying it right. and make, making arrests. One way that we've been successful is that police are trained now really well as far as to identify human trafficking. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In the past, if they arrested someone in a, you know, in a, in a flop house who had drug paraphernalia or was committing prostitution, uh, that person was charged with a crime and then you know, process and then, you know, released. Right. Now the police are trained to look further and ask the questions. Are you here against your will? Were you brought here 
and you know, is there someone who is taking some of your money and is, is your boss? I mean, that's the kind of thing that they're asking now, and they are able to root out human trafficking. So it's, um, we've done a, a decent job of it. There's still more work to do, though. Yeah, it seems like you know, uh, some of that, a lot of it, probably tied to the uh, New England Patriots owner and what happened in Jupiter, Florida. Um, being such a high-profile case, the Epstein case, you know, these these uh, these pictures sort of obliterated our idea of what prostitution was, and not necessarily that those weren't, you know, uh, that the Mr. Kraft's, uh, you know, case had to do with you know human trafficking, but or sex trafficking, but there was a tie-in of that, and that was the big sort of national or international news tied to it. So now you've got this idea that we really don't know what's going on. <laughs> and yeah. we need to figure it out. And so that's uh, it, it's great that there's this these grants task force and um, interest in it because at the end of the day, what it helps is put perspective on the victims um, as the, as these women as victims and not just you know out there committing some illegal act that needs to be treated independently. Um, I hope that we can make it through this quickly, the rest of this, uh, figuring out the health aspect of COVID-19 and how to build our immune systems and, and keep our society intact because there's been such a hit to jobs and families and people and the psyche of everyone. I, I feel a general sense of dismay um, with the separation for so long. And um, and, and I don't know, how, how are you dealing with it? How are you staying so optimistic and doing your job? Any advice? Oh, just overall with uh, this, well, you have to be able to compartmentalize everything, you know, because in this job you see lots of pain and tragedy, and you have to be able to know that it's there to lend your heart to these victims of crime who suffer unspeakable tragedy and yet continue to do your job because they're depending on you to be professional and do your job and get a conviction. Because if you're too emotional in court, if you just prey upon or play to people's heartstrings, you can have a mistrial and so you need to do what you do based on facts and that's a good prosecutor you know you can you can frame it in the right way where it does affect people emotionally but you have to ultimately have the goods you've got to have the facts you've got to be able to prove cases beyond a reasonable doubt which is a very high standard in the law and that's what makes a good prosecutor and that's why you know, our conviction rates are amongst the best in the whole state and I'm proud of that because it shows that we're prosecuting the right cases and we're, we're able to do our jobs effectively. So, um, you know, you just have to, it's part of the job. You've got to be able to separate, you know, your, your emotion from your decision making. And sometimes, you know, a case will come in here and that, you know, you know that uh, the defendant is, uh, is a bad guy or uh, you may, uh, you know, the, the person may have a terrible reputation in the community, but it doesn't matter because you have to have the facts, the evidence in that particular case, or else you can't file it. Mm. Well, thank you for helping us understand the process, helping us understand the importance of what you do for us and, uh, and all of those that work under your supervision. And um, thank you for taking the time today for giving us a bit more hope in uh, this time going forward for those families suffering, those children suffering, and for those that we can all sort of take a moment and, and pray for and, and hope for the best going forward. Um, this has been State Attorney uh, Dave Ehrenberg, State Attorney for Palm Beach County. Thank you, sir. Really appreciate you. Thanks, Dr. Ken. Thanks for having me on. This has been another Maximum Health Quality Living. See you next time. Oh, Lord.